0: Matthew 6, 19 through 21. I'd like to begin with uh, Florence Chadwick. Maybe you recognize the name, maybe you don't. She was born in 1918 in San Diego, California. And by the age of 33, she had successfully swam across the English Channel on two separate occasions, breaking the then-current women's record. And at age 34, She became the first woman to attempt to swim across the Catalina Channel, uh, from Catalina Island to Palos Verde on the California coast. But as she swam, uh, she needed to be flanked by boats on both sides. Some of the boats on one side would make sure that she was kept safe from other boats in the area, that nobody would run into her. Other boats watched out for sharks to make sure she wasn't attacked. It was a long and grueling swim in which the temperature of the water began to change. And before long, she began to feel nauseous and sick. She had trouble breathing and uh, decided, though, to continue to paddle on, stroke after stroke, swimming through the water. But after 15 hours of doing this, a thick, heavy fog complicated the matter and began to set in over uh, the waters. And it was so thick that she could hardly see the boats on the side of her as she was swimming. Worse yet, she completely lost sight of the coastline that she was swimming towards. And so she began to get really scared, wondering if she was swimming in circles out in this water. And with that, began to creep in a loss of hope that this was a good idea, that this was going to work out. So she begged to be taken out of the water after 15 hours. But her mom and her trainer, who were in boats nearby, encouraged her, you're close. You're close. You can do it. You're close. But in spite of their support and encouragement, all Florence could see was a wall of fog. And so finally, in desperation, she asked her safety crew, to pull her up into the boat. She was done, physically and emotionally exhausted. And so I wonder if this morning, to play with this analogy a little bit, if some of you can resonate with this story. To keep swimming can be difficult in the face of so many challenges and obstacles in life. There can be this thick intimidating life fog that increasingly rolls in and seems to limit our capacity to maintain our hope as we're doing life. Since our return from Spain, Jenny and I talked about, we moved back permanently to the States in April. Um, It's been tricky at times to know how to paddle, to know how to swim, uh, how to live well in the midst of this culture in the midst of the changing political climate, in the midst of the changing political temperatures uh, in this country and in this world, quite honestly. And so maybe you two are wondering how how to press on. Perhaps you've seen some sharks of your own, the sharks of cancel culture, the sharks of persecution where you work. Perhaps you're just feeling sick physically, Uh, nauseous, um, having grieved maybe the loss of a loved one who may have recently passed. Or perhaps you have your own health crisis that you're navigating and dealing with and struggling with. I hope that you hear encouraging voices around you, like Chadwick Heard. I hope you've got people that are cheering for you, certainly in this body, in this church, uh, and outside as well. But perhaps you're wondering, Are they enough? Is it enough? Can I continue? Chadwick had lost her line of sight. She could no longer see the destination where she was going, and so she pulled out. And so this morning, uh, I'd like us to look at uh, this passage, which I think to a large degree is about our line of sight as well as Christians. Our divine shoreline, which is heaven, in the direction in which all believers are headed. And our text is, of course, Matthew 6, which has already been sung. And I know Stuart did an amazing job of teaching through this passage uh, a month or two ago. Uh, But this is a passage that I've been working through recently and wanted to go ahead and and teach on as well. Uh, Stuart taught, I think, on a larger chunk. And I'm just going to focus on the first two or three verses. And so as we kind of navigate our way through these verses, just kind of three questions to guide us. Uh, What is Jesus teaching in these verses? Why is he teaching it? And how do we apply it? And so before we go any further, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, And this will be our prayer, and we'll continue forward. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Amen. So what does Jesus teach in these verses? And if I could try to summarize it, I would say it this way. Jesus is teaching us to treasure up heavenly treasure. And the word, kind of the way we get that, or where I get that, is you know when you look at a lot of the English translations of this passage, uh, there's a wordplay going on here that often doesn't show up in the English. Uh, Most of our translation in English will say something like, do not lay up, do not store up, uh, do not collect treasures on earth, but rather do that in heaven. But a more literal reading would actually be, do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is using that same word uh, in this passage. And so treasures on earth can be something that you can touch, or they can be something that's invisible, more difficult to see and to touch. Jesus had just spoken about some invisible treasures like pride and arrogance in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 2, in this chapter, Jesus had just talked about the Pharisees who liked to the practice their giving to the needy in public. Why? To receive praise. And he says that, guess what? They have received their reward, their treasure in full. In verse 5, he told his followers not to pray like the hypocrites who want to be seen by others. He said, they have received their reward, their treasure. In verse 16, he told his listeners not to fast like those who want to be seen by others. Truly, they have received their reward, their treasure. And so wanting to be seen and liked by others can be a kind of earthly treasure. And then in our passage, I think Jesus begins to allude to a kind of treasure that is a bit more visible and tangible. Jesus commands in verse 19, treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven, in contrast to on earth. And when you look at, kind of, for those that are uh, into language and things of that sort, the Greek here can be, can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could be that Jesus is saying, hey, don't be in the habit of treasuring up treasures on earth, but rather make it, a, a, make it something habitual, make it something normal uh, every day to treasure up treasures in heaven. Or Jesus could be saying that, hey, stop treasuring up treasures on earth and start treasuring up treasures in heaven. A couple different ways we could understand Jesus' command here. Of course, they're all uh, true and uh, and applicable. And so as I was kind of looking through this passage and and working through it, um, you know, we're we're reminded of that familiar um, thing that is sometimes said, you know, when we think of passing away in this life that that you cannot have a U-Haul behind you that takes everything with you when you go. And that's true. Uh, We know that to be true. But it is interesting here that Jesus is nuancing that understanding a little bit. Essentially, he's saying, that's true. You cannot take it with you. But you can send it on ahead of you. You can send it and have it stored up, treasured up, laid up in heaven with your name on it, in a sense, waiting for you in his presence. Um, now, as I'm working through these verses and thinking through and praying through, it's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a part of me and probably a part of a lot of us that wants to think, wow, these are, these are good verses. And I think Stuart said this as well. It's like, man, I know just who needs to hear these verses mm-hmm. uh, and then not think of myself uh, as somebody that needs them. But I do. Um, I want to think, oh, well, you know, uh, I'm not rich, I'm not wealthy, I'm not storing up treasures on earth, I don't have a home as large as so-and-so, my wardrobe's not as big, I don't have the latest technology, I don't, I don't, I don't, and just try to justify myself. But it's interesting that probably the exact opposite is true or is the case because at the beginning of this sermon, uh, you've probably seen this already, but at the beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, We're told that a crowd was forming around Jesus to hear him teach. And who was that crowd? Well, we're told then at the end of chapter four, who made up that crowd? The poor and the afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, paralytics, those possessed by demons, and more. Those were the kind of people that Jesus was giving this teaching to. And so the temptation to treasure things on earth, it's not limited to the rich or to the poor to the wealthy, or to the healthy, or to the sick. It's applicable to me. It's applicable to all of us. Jesus says, treasure up heavenly treasure. But why? Why does he say this? What reasons does he give? Well, he's going to give a few. And the first reason is that treasures in heaven are indestructible. In contrast, these treasures on earth, they're subject to something that Jesus says are the destroyers of, uh, was it? I want to say wrath. Uh, moth and rust, combining those two words, of moth and rust. So this word of destruction, it's a fascinating word. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe the hypocrites and their faces when they fast. In verse 16, Jesus criticizing the Pharisees who are fasting in this way, says that they like to disfigure their faces. They like to make unattractive their faces. They like to destroy their faces so that everybody knows they're fasting. And so Jesus is here saying that, guess what? Earthly treasures are going to be made unattractive too. Earthly treasures are going to be disfigured as well. Earthly treasures will be destroyed at the end of the day. Moths, in particular, are destroyers. I think probably some of us have experienced uh, clothes being eaten through. And so Jesus is probably referring to the larvae that eat clothing. Clothing was a major form of wealth uh, then as it is now. Was it just a month or two ago? We probably all saw pictures on TV and social media about the Met Gala the Costume Institute Gala, and so politicians and and others um, like to make all sorts of political and fashion statements at the Met Gala. Fashion is just as important today as it was then, if not more. Um, I call the Met Gala the Super Bowl of fashion, although I I just don't watch it like I watch the Super Bowl. Uh, But Jesus says that rust is also a destroyer because it refers to the activity of eating, and it could be an eating that's done by insects, just eating through materials. But probably what Jesus has in mind is um, corrosion and rust, decay. And it might even include mold as a kind of destroyer. I think we're all familiar living in this area of the country, too, that mold is prevalent uh, in this area as well. Ginny and I, when we got home in uh, April, discovered that there was mold in the basement uh, of the house where. we were that we're living in. We're living with Ginny's mother, and so we've just finished up, by God's grace, hopefully four to five months of remediation, but I couldn't help hearing sort of these verses echoing in my mind uh, throughout that process, which was um, interesting. So heavenly treasure, it's indestructible. It's not subject to the destroyers of moth and rust, but Jesus is going to give another reason why we're to treasure up heavenly treasure. And he says that it's not subject to thieves. It's not subject to being stolen. It's eternally safe and secure. So that heavenly treasure that you send ahead, you don't ever have to worry about it not being there when you show up. Nobody can touch it. It is safe and secure. And so probably here, um, Jesus is alluding to people's homes, uh, which were made out of mud, brick, and clay, um, uh, a thief could easily dig through the clay or the mud uh, under the wall of a house and, and steal valuables. And of course, thieves continue to break in and to steal today as well. Most of us uh, probably have installed lights uh, on all the different sides of our homes, You know, motion-detected lights to detect anybody that comes up. Uh, perhaps you've got you know Ring or Nest as a doorbell so that you can talk to people Um, that might be suspicious, safes, vaults, all these sorts of things in the home. This issue of security is something that we very much feel uh, today as well. And of course, there's a whole other realm of cybersecurity and issues of safety uh, and security there as well. But, you know, it's interesting because moth and rust, you might have something that you own get destroyed by moth and rust. uh, And you can make the case that that's sort of accidental. You can't really prevent that. But when a thief comes into your presence... When a thief comes into your home and steals something, that just feels a little more personal, and it's a lot more difficult to sort of stomach and handle uh, emotionally. Treasure up, treasure in heaven, Jesus says. And it is treasure in heaven. It is an interesting phrase, and it's an interesting concept. Um, But I don't think it's new. If we were to look back at... um, So as Protestant evangelicals, we don't have uh, a series of books between the Old and the New Testament. We don't hold those as inspired sacred scripture, uh, but it could be called the Deuterocanical books or the Apocrypha. Well, there's some of those books where there's teaching about treasure in heaven. And so just as context, I'm just going to read two uh, of those um, because Jesus and other uh, Jewish people in that day would have known this when Jesus began to teach his Sermon on the Mount. Sirach 29.11 says, Lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend, and do not let it rust under stone and be lost. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. Or Levi 13.5 says, Work righteousness, therefore, my children, upon the earth, that ye may have it as a treasure in heaven. And so it's really, I don't think, any surprise that at some point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would begin to talk about heavenly treasure. Um, Even the Apostle Peter would make a reference to this as well. Uh, He would say in 1 Peter 1.4 that we have been born into a living hope. Uh, That phrase alone gives me goosebumps, I think, every time I think about it, that I have been born into a living hope, but it gets better. He says, "To to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And there's other passages that talk uh, about this concept, 1 Corinthians 3.11, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, and so those, you know, you can look those up later if you would like. So though heavenly treasure is indestructible and safe, Jesus is going to give, I think, an even more important reason to treasure heavenly treasure. Verse 21 says, For where your heart is, uh, or for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Sort of an old technique. Uh, You've probably heard it before. Uh, I heard it from Howard Hendricks at school, that whenever you see the word for in a text, you should ask, what's it there for? It's trying to make some sort of a relationship between what's gone ahead and what's coming after. So Jesus is saying, Treasure up heavenly treasure for or because it's going to reveal the location of your heart. The location of your heart and your treasure, there's a connection there, there's a linkage there. And so Jesus isn't saying, for what your treasure is, that will be your heart. Um, Rather, he seems to be emphasizing geography, location, place, for where your heart is you know, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like Jesus has been contrasting earth and heaven, earth and heaven. And so I think in this passage, we're seeing another one of those kinds of contrast. It's critical for us to think about what are those treasures on earth that we do hold dear, and they're having a place in our heart and mind that, uh, that they shouldn't hold. But I think in this passage, Jesus is trying to get us to, to sort of shift um, think more in terms of where and a bit less in terms of what. Are our treasures on earth or are they being sent ahead to heaven? Now, at this point, um, you know, at least I caught myself thinking, man, if you're sending everything forward to heaven, so to speak, what's left on earth? Should all Christians be poor uh, you think of the example of Mother Teresa, the Franciscans, and others who just wouldn't own anything. Uh, but again, I don't think Jesus is saying here, do not uh, possess or own treasures on earth. Rather, he's cautioning against this laying up, this storing up, this accumulating, depositing, keeping safe treasures on earth, putting aside, reserving stockpiling, prepping treasures on earth, thinking that somehow this is where I'm going to be for the long haul. One theologian said that, um, oh, let us not live in this world as if we thought of staying here forever. It's easy to fall into that. um, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The heart's an interesting word in the Bible. Uh, it certainly can represent the physical organ of the, of the body. Uh, but often in, in the Bible, it's, it's something more. And it's a complex concept. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you could try to explain the relationship uh, between the different elements that make up the heart. But often there's two or three elements, sometimes four, that make up the, the heart in the Bible. Uh, it can capture, it can represent your mind. To talk about your heart can can say, um, it it represents the things that you think about, the things that you ponder. Uh, It represents your intellect. It can also capture your desires, your will, uh, what you long for. Um, And there are some that see it as also representing your emotions, your attitudes, the things which drive your feelings. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant Reformation, he said that what a man loves, this is his God. For he carries it in his heart. You ever see somebody just walk around and you just feel like it's so obvious what their treasure is? They're just carrying it around almost like this. He says they go, about it, they go about with it night and day. They sleep with it. They wake with it. Be it what it may, wealth or self, pleasure or renown. Charles Spurgeon said that our idolatrous love of worldly things is the chief cause of our knowing so little of spiritual things. One cannot fill his cup from the pools of earth and yet have room in it for the crystal streams of heaven. But those in heaven have no idols, nothing to occupy the heart, no rival for the Lord Jesus Jesus commands us to treasure up heavenly treasure. This, he doesn't give us the option. He's not um, suggesting. He's commanding us to do this. And unlike earthly treasures, heavenly treasure is indestructible. It's eternally safe. And most importantly, it's because he knows the location of our heart and our treasure are connected. So how do we um, begin to try to apply something like this? Um, there's so many different ways, you know, that you could try to apply a a passage like this in a text like this. Uh, I'm going to suggest four, um, but there's a lot of different ways that you could do it. Um, The first way that we treasure a heavenly treasure is we start with loving the person of Jesus. It sounds obvious and basic, and it is, but it's true. It has to start there. For the last year and a half, the world's been completely caught up in a discussion around COVID-19, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, So many different names out there floating around for COVID-19. And it's contagious. Uh, We know that. But what's incredible to me is that it pales in comparison to another contagious ailment called sin. And since the beginning of time, 100% of people have tested positive for the ailment of sin. There's never been a person with a negative test. Everybody is showing positive for sin. It doesn't care about your ethnicity. It doesn't care about your age. It doesn't care about your weight. It doesn't care about your height. It doesn't care about your pre-existing conditions. And the reality is, if you have it, the long-term effects are actually eternal. Eternal separation from God after death. And so just as two opposite poles of a magnet can't be forced to come together at any point in time, so God can't be forced to join together with sin. Amen. And so this ailment of sin means that we are not allowed to be in his presence. Romans 2.5 says that a stubborn and unrepentant heart actually stores up and treasures up something as well except that a stubborn and unrepentant heart stores up and treasures up the wrath of God, which is a very sobering uh, idea and a sobering truth. But the good news is that Jesus can be your healing. Jesus can be my healing. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, and you would like to be, um, if you do not want the wrath of God, which I understand is not politically correct. It's not sexy. It's not cool um, to talk about the wrath of God, but the scriptures are what they are. Amen. And so, if you're not a Christian this morning and you would like to be, to be saved from your sins, it's not complicated. Uh, I like to think of it as just the A B C's. The A is for admit. Admit that you have a terminal condition. Admit that you have sinned. That you are a sinner. But believe that Jesus was sinless. Believe that he died on the cross for my sin, for your sin. Uh, that he died. That he was buried. That he rose again. That he went to heaven. Uh, but then even just as beautiful, that he's coming back. It's so awesome. You know, we don't just have a God who's up there and waiting for us to come to him. He's going to come Again. And then confess, uh, see, see. confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you, if you do this this morning, go find another Christian uh, and tell them, confess to them that, that you have admitted and that you have believed in Jesus Christ. And then after that, go find a non-Christian. Go find somebody else and just talk with them and confess to them about this change in your life. Or perhaps this morning you're already a professing and public follower of Jesus. I want to pray and encourage and, and hope and ask God that you might grow in your fellowship and in your enjoyment uh, with God more and more. I might call this the ABCDs, the D's for discipleship, the growth that comes after uh, we come to know Jesus. John Piper says this: to test yourself, would you want to go to heaven if Christ were not there? Is Jesus or his gifts your treasure? The pleasure that you take in God is the measure of the treasure you find in him. So, when we love the person of Jesus as a professing public follower of Christ, we desire to increase the amount of time that we talk with him. My wife and I talk a lot. I love her, it's natural. How could I not talk to her a lot? Well, when you talk to God, the Bible just calls it prayer, it's not complicated. Um, It's hard for us because of our sin nature, but it's a beautiful thing. And in verse 5, Jesus tells us about this kind of prayer with him that brings treasure, that brings reward. When we love the person of Jesus, we'll also desire to increase our time talking about him with others. The Bible just calls this evangelism. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, yeah, that's right. You're going to get persecuted for that. You just are. But be glad and rejoice, he says, because your reward, your treasure in heaven is great. That's pretty awesome. Addressing suffering and persecution, a preacher once said, I know we've talked a lot here about heaven and looking to heaven, but he said, do not be impatient to go to heaven. Mortal life is but a brief interval between two eternities. And if we judged unselfishly and saw the needs of earth, we might almost say, give us back the old days of human life that through 1,000 years we might serve the Lord in suffering and in reproach as we cannot do in glory. If you're a Christian, and once you enter the presence of God, you don't get to suffer persecution anymore. This is it. This is our opportunity to suffer for Christ. And nobody wants to run out and be a martyr. But there's tremendous blessing and privilege and promise in being a faithful follower of Christ in the midst of persecution. To treasure a heavenly treasure, we begin by loving Jesus. But we can also, secondly, love others. Again, love and serve others. Seems kind of basic, and it is basic. Speaking to those who are rich in this world, Paul told for uh, Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said, tell that congregation to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. always, Uh, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. And so, you know, as I'm reading that verse, I'm thinking, ouch, do I know somebody in need? If I don't know somebody in need, can I find somebody in need? Um, But if you know somebody in need, if I know somebody in need today? Am I also ready today to be generous and to serve and to help them? Paul says, always being ready to share with others. 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. It's one of those famous passages, the always be ready to give an answer. But we have another kind of always be ready, quote unquote, passage here. Uh, Paul is saying, always be ready to share with others. That's hard. <laughs> and so maybe I, maybe you need to make some changes in our schedules to have some more disposable time as well. Uh, it's really hard to share and to serve. You know, it's been real, it's good, I see this need, but I just, I've got, I've got something on my calendar already. So it's just gonna have to wait, God understands. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this. My life has just been um, maxed out for the last seven to eight months since we've gotten back. And so I um, really needing to think through and to work through this with the Lord as well so that I can have space and margin so that when my neighbor who uses a walker takes a walk every day at four o'clock, um, do I have time to go out and talk with him? Um, Loving others, uh, loving and serving other people, let's talk about this, another way that we can love and serve others uh, in the midst of a pandemic. This one is a little bit trickier, and I want to start by reading around uh, reading a letter that was written about 250 years after Jesus. Um, there was a plague that was unleashed in North Africa. Uh, it quickly reached the city of Rome, and this plague lasted for about 20 years. Um, Hopefully ours does not last 20 years, but there's historical precedent for this one doing so. It reportedly killed as many as 5,000 people a day. Uh, and so here's a report that was written about that plague, uh, written by a church leader uh, in, that, in that time. It says, Most of our brethren showed love and loyalty in not sparing themselves while helping one another. Tending to the sick with no thought of danger and gladly departing this life with them after becoming infected with their disease. Many who nursed others to health died themselves, thus transferring their death to themselves. The best of our own brothers lost their lives this way, some elders, deacons, and laymen, a form of death based on strong faith and piety that seems in every way equal to martyrdom. They would also take up the bodies of the saints, close their eyes, shut their mouths, and carry them on their shoulders. They would embrace them, wash and dress them in burial clothes. And this is the hard part to read, and soon receive the same services themselves. The heathen were the exact opposite. They pushed away those with the first signs of the disease and fled from their dearest. They even threw half dead into the roads and treated unburied corpses like refuse in hope of avoiding the plague of death, which for all their efforts was difficult to escape. And so Christian friend, uh, Christian brother, Christian sister this morning, I wanna encourage us to treasure up heavenly treasure by the way that we love and serve one another in the midst of this pandemic. We're all aware of the drama uh, and the challenges uh, that this issue has caused. Uh, both outside, but also even particularly within the church. Um, people probably are never going to agree with regards to masks, vaccines, boosters, testing, and so much more. But I want to encourage the body of Christ that rather than divide into camps, rather than severing friendships with those who might disagree, rather than forming our own Christian tribe of people that we'll connect with, rather than lobbying accusations at one another or those who have a different viewpoint, rather than unfriending people on social media, would encourage us, I think Jesus would have us to treasure up heavenly treasure in how we love and serve one another and to rise above by his grace and with his power to rise above politics, to rise above sports, to rise above science, to rise above anything as we treasure heavenly treasure above all else. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I know this isn't easy. I know this is hard. There's a lot of layers and dynamics at play. Um... But it's really important. To treasure heavenly treasure, we begin by loving Jesus. We also love and serve others. And a third way, uh, which you might expect uh, from a missionary, is to love and continue the support to support the work of missions. Um, but I think it has a strong theological grounding. You know Our God, our great God, He has a mission. He has a purpose uh, that He is pursuing. Uh, all mission starts with uh, the person and the work of of God. Um, So while we can talk about the mission of the church and what we do, uh, when we do it, how we do it, etc., I just want to encourage us to recognize that even before we talk about the mission of the church, let's remember that God has a mission. And God's mission has a strategy. And that strategy is called the church. We are a part of God's mission. And the beautiful thing is we get to see uh, the fulfillment of part of that mission. Uh, We get to go back to the future in Revelation 5 and in 7, where we see people from every tribe, from every language, and from every nation worshiping God. Man, what a beautiful picture, especially in the midst of so much division and chaos today, to see that kind of unity and... um, Centrality and worship of God. Jim Elliot said, "He's no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose." Another missionary CT stud, which again, you've got to uh, you have to be a stud with a name like that. <laughs> Only one life. He wrote this poem entitled "Only One Life." Twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We begin by loving Jesus. We love and serve others. We can love and support missions. And fourth, we can love heaven and keep it in our sight line. You know, for many people, heaven can feel a bit frightening and scary. I'm with you. I've never been to heaven. I have no sort of experience to describe it. But at the same time, the scriptures speak in countless places about the beauties and the wonders and the glories of heaven and the presence of God. And we don't have cause to fear going to be in the presence presence of the one who has loved us like no other. A priest was once asked what he expected after death and he replied, well, if it comes to that, which is a strange way to answer the question, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss but I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing topics. Again, if we're honest, many of us do struggle a little bit with this idea of heaven and how to love it and keep it in our sight line if there's some level of fear associated with it. Uh, Others may not be afraid of heaven, but they think it's going to be boring. You know, you get all the stereotypes uh, of heaven. And a commentator said, you know what? Satan sometimes doesn't even care if you believe in heaven, but he's very interested in if you, if you think it's boring. Because if you think heaven is boring, what incentive do you have to go out and share this good news about going to a place that's, that's wretched, that's boring, you know? Um, others have concerns that they won't recognize loved ones in heaven. And so there's a concern. How do I love heaven if I'm not even sure if I'm going to recognize loved ones? I think there's various indications in Scripture uh, that will recognize uh, people there. Um, certainly don't have time to look at all those, but an interesting passage is Jesus says we're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, how am I supposed to know who these people are? I mean, certainly he can tell me, but uh, I, um, you know, that's, that's the only way we're going to be able to know and recognize. Um, St. Augustine you know, has an interesting quote. He says, We have not lost our dear ones who have departed from this life but have merely sent them ahead of us. And so we also shall depart and come to that life where they will be more than ever dear, as they will be better known to us and where we shall love them without fear of parting. Lots of great resources on heaven. Uh, Work through the book of Isaiah. Work through the Gospels. Work through the book of Revelation. Uh, There's uh, Richard Baxter, an old Puritan in the 1600s, wrote a classic called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. Uh, Randy Alcorn, there's others who have written on this topic if you're interested. We're to treasure heavenly treasure. They're indestructible. They're eternally secure. And most importantly, Jesus knows that we're to do that because it reveals the location of our heart. And Jesus is super interested in our hearts. I started with Florence Chadwick. I want to come back to that story. Uh, she'd been swimming, as I mentioned, for 15 hours when the fog and the chill set in. Unable to see the boats that were on each side of her, um, she was you know, despairing. Uh, she lost sight of the land that was in front of her, and so she eventually asked and begged to be taken out of the water, despite her mother's encouragement that she could make it. And so Florence enters the boat, as I mentioned, physically and emotionally exhausted. Once she was pulled up into the boat, however, um, she discovered kind of a disappointing and painful reality. She was told at that point that she was less than half a mile away from the coastline. She had gotten that close but couldn't see the coastline, so she had given up. Um, She just simply lost the the sight line of where she was trying to go. But two months later, she tried again. She was a very resilient and determined woman. And as she's swimming and carrying on, the same thick fog would set in again this second time. Uh, But this time, as you might imagine, she succeeded. And when she was asked why and how, she said that despite the thick fog and the inability to see the coastline, she kept a mental image in her head of the shoreline as she swam. If you're here this morning and you're feeling lost in a life fog, maybe you're feeling sick, unsafe, nauseous, uh, whatever the case may be, I just want to encourage you, to keep this mental image in your mind of the heavenly shoreline uh, to- towards which we're, we're headed by God's grace, to do that by making it a practice, by making it a routine, uh, to treasure up heavenly treasure, to know where you're sending your treasure ahead to. Uh, and one day, by God's grace and his presence, you'll hear the, the amazing, well done, well done, from the Lord himself. And so as a closing prayer, I'm um, just going to read two verses. Uh, when the Apostle Paul was imprisoned, um, I think this, these two verses kind of capture how he was able to keep his sight line on heaven despite being uh, locked up. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Amen.